welcome to Let's Pod This. This is the first episode in our Gerrymandering Oklahoma series. This episode features our interview with Keith Gaddy, who's a political science professor at the University of Oklahoma in Norman, and honestly, one of the most experienced and influential voices on the subject of legislative redistricting and, by extension, gerrymandering. Now, if the terms legislative redistricting and gerrymandering are unfamiliar to you, don't worry. We define all this stuff in the first five minutes of the interview. The reason that we wanted to do a series on redistricting is because it's a topic with which many people aren't super familiar and it has an enormous impact on how our democracy works or doesn't work. As you'll hear in this series, there's a right way and a wrong way to do redistricting and how we do it affects who runs for office, who gets elected, and how well your interests as a voter are represented. When redistricting is done poorly, not only does it diminish the democratic process, but it promotes extreme partisanship and attracts politicians from the fringes of both sides of the aisle who have little incentive to talk to one another, let alone compromise on policy issues. Okay, enough with the preamble ramble. Let's get on to the interview. Dr. Keith Gaddy from OU. Hello, sir. Hey, it's good to be here. How are you today? I'm good, and thanks for being here. Um, as we'll say, our local expert on this for sure in Oklahoma, although you have some notoriety on the national scale. Yeah, I've worked in 17 states and have worked in two of the most controversial redistrictings in recent American history. I worked the Texas redistricting in 2003-2004, the Tom DeLay gerrymander, as a consultant to the Attorney General of Texas. And then in Wisconsin in 2011-2012, I was a consultant to the state legislature up there for technical and data functions and also for racial representation issues. All right. So as I've told people from time to time, regardless of what your politics are, I've probably worked for your Satan. (laughs) (laughs) Right, because because, um, redistricting tends to be viewed, or gerrymandering, uh, tends to be viewed as a partisan issue. But it's not so much partisan as it is like anti-power. Whichever party's in power is the one that is at risk of losing that power. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, if you start with the definition of gerrymandering, it is to manipulate legislative boundaries for political advantage, okay? And that can take shape as partisan advantage. It can be a racial or ethnic advantage, or it can be a geographic advantage. It doesn't have to be partisan, but the context where it's most controversial right now is in partisanship. And... There's no positive definition of the word, okay? Um, it's it's kind of a dirty word. Yeah, I mean, it's like the word burden. No one ever says, oh, what a lovely burden, <laughs> right. right? Yeah, there's no, oh, what a beautiful gerrymander. Right. It's, I mean, maybe they look like Rochard tests or, uh, or Jackson Pollock painting, and they're lovely in that respect. Well, but, yeah, there's nothing good about a gerrymander. So we're we're off to the races here. I think before we get a little, <laughs> before we get any farther, a couple things just for uh, folks that are maybe tuning in to state, local, and federal politics for the first time. We're, we're talking about Germany. We're talking about the, the drawing of legislative districts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this is a subset of redistricting generally. Dr. Gaddy, can you talk a little bit about when when redistricting happens, why, why it happens, and kind of what goes into that process? Well, uh, first of all, call me Keith. Appreciate yeah. it. <laughs> Just don't call me late for dinner, right? Okay. The... Um, Three words that come up, reapportionment, redistricting, gerrymandering. 
And in order to get to those three things, you also have to talk about the census. Under the Constitution, we take a census every decade. And that census is designed to allocate and apportion political power. So when you apportion something, you hand it out. Okay. So for the U.S. House of Representatives, states get representatives based upon their population. And there's an assumption that's built into subsequent subsequent constitutional law that all districts in a state will be of equal population. At the state legislative level, so not for the National Congress, but for your state legislature, we also reapportion every 10 years in that we have to equalize populations of all state legislative districts which means that a seat may go away from a rural community that's lost population and a new seat might crop up in a suburban or an urban area that's been growing. That's also a version of reapportionment where you reallocate power. Redistricting is where you draw the boundaries around the populations to elect the representatives. Okay? Gerrymandering is where you try and seize political advantage to maximize the impact of the votes that you want to have maximized and to minimize the impact of your political opponents in the representative process. So step-by-step, reapportionment, we allocate seats. Redistricting, we draw boundaries around people to elect representatives into those seats. Gerrymandering, that's where we try and screw the other guy. Fair enough. All right. I have a question about uh, apportionment and reapportionment, right? So we're doing it every, every year. You mentioned that the goal is that, or the expectation, is that every congressional district within a state is of roughly equal population. So in Oklahoma, I think each district has 700,000 people in them-ish right now. 743,000 and change based upon the last Last census, census. which was, which was a scant nine years ago. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, we have a census next year in 2020, so we'll do this process in 2021 the next time and we get to see how much we've grown as a state exactly and we ought to talk about this let's introduce a term here one person one vote hmm. okay um the idea when you apportion political power is that you're not going to try and distort the representative relationship between a people and their legislature okay and when we allocate these populations in these seats we allocate the counts from the census people we don't allocate voters We don't allocate citizens. We allocate people, except for Indians not taxed Hmm. under the Constitution. But we'll set that aside for the moment, okay, (laughs) because that's a largely irrelevant clause now because Indians have been citizens since 1928. So all the bodies count, including immigrants and undocumented aliens. Right. Okay. And children. And children, absolutely. Everybody counts. Everybody counts. So you allocate, you, you allocate these populations, and the, um, in doing so, you're working off the census data. And this is why the first line of combat in redistricting and representation is over the census itself. Because if you look at the districts around the United States, one thing we know is that low turnout districts and low citizenship districts are more likely to elect Democrats. Okay, we know this. This has been growing as a phenomenon for about three, four decades, Hmm. and it has an impact on the allocation of seats around the United States for Congress. It has an impact on where you put districts inside a state. So, for example, down in Texas, the highest turnout congressional district and the lowest turnout congressional districts had the same number of people in 2012 when they were first used for elections. Mm -hmm. 
but the highest turnout district has three and a half times as many voters. So there's a inefficiency in the translation of votes into seats, even though you've equalized the number of bodies across the districts. Okay. Interesting. So this term one person, one vote, when it comes up, it's not really one person, one vote. It's every district has the same number of represent has the same number of residents. Every representative has the same number of constituents to be held accountable to. And that's because representative functions about more than just voting. It's also about constituency service. It's about representation of an individual to their government, whether they vote or not. And there's actually litigation out of California from 35 years ago, a case called the Garza case, where this gets brought up, that it's not just about equalizing citizens or equalizing votes. You can have distortions that exist in terms of citizens or votes across districts, but you have people that may not be voters, may not be citizens, they still have the right to petition to government. Mm -hmm. They still have the right to request constituency service. And if you were to apportion based upon citizen population, for example, you might end up with a lawmaker with twice as many actual constituents to have to handle and deal with. That lawmaking is also about uh, workload in its own budsman's role. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of different dimensions that come into one person, one vote, and equal representation. It's not just about my votes being translated into seats in Congress. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been in the media a lot recently because there was a, a, a case that went to the Supreme Court because the Trump administration had planned uh, for, you know, depending on who you believe, a variety of reasons mm -hmm. uh, to add a question to the census in 2020 that would ask about citizenship. And there was, you know, um, I, I am not an expert on the history of the census. Apparently this has been done in the past. It has not been done recently. But the concern was that if you do that, then the next step was going to be to try and use, instead of the total number of persons, to use citizens to draw legislative districts, which would lead to the problems that you're talking about. Yeah, and I actually wrote a law review article about this for Stanford Policy Journal in uh, 2012. Uh, we did a, uh, a thing on apportionment issues for C-SPAN out at Stanford Law and then did a special issue of one of the law reviews out there and got into these issues. And there are real impacts if you work with citizen data rather than just population counts. It moves about seven seats out of California and Texas to other parts of the country. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it has a real impact, which means it also has an impact on the Electoral College vote. Right. Sure. Okay. So, Nate, think about that for a minute. Um, here's the brief, the very brief history on this question. Until 1950, we asked a citizenship question on the census of all respondents. Afterwards, we had this thing called the long form on the census, okay? And one in six households would get the long form, and the citizenship question was on there. Then, starting in 2010, what we did is we started asking on the American Community Survey the citizenship question and used statistical techniques to extrapolate to populations what mm -hmm. the citizenship rates were. It actually is a necessary question to ask in some form or fashion for redistricting, though, because... Under the Voting Rights Act, we have to demonstrate that certain districts will perform on behalf of disadvantaged minority groups. So we have to be able to estimate voter participation and turnout and the ability of a minority group to have what's called an equal opportunity to elect a representative of choice. In order to do that, you have to have citizenship data mm -hmm. to base on the potential electorate. Um, uh, Tom Hoffler, the recently uh, deceased Republican redistricting consultant, had brought these issues up in a variety of his um, papers and records, which his daughter turned over to plaintiffs in North Carolina right. <laughs> suing the GOP majority uh, state legislature down there. And that's how a lot of this information ended up coming out. Right. But, you know, when you advocate that citizenship question, the first question which you bring up correctly is, how might this be used to change the, the basis for apportionment? 
right, for allocating seat, uh, allocating power across seats. But the second question is, does it actually serve to intimidate people to not respond to the census in the first place? Right. Sure. Well, yeah. and I mean, I think, Scott, we should probably do another episode about yeah. the census yeah. as we get closer to 2020. Please fill it out. <laughs> when it comes to your house, please fill it out. It's a huge deal. I mean, um, you know, most of our listeners know that I uh, I work in an HIV program um, here at, at OU, and we are funded through federal grants. And one of the questions we get asked by the feds are, you know, what proportion of your HIV positive patients are citizens or not citizens? Because it just helps kind of know like exactly, you know, who you're working with. What happens in Oklahoma City is different than what happens in, in Los Angeles. It's different than happens in Milwaukee. Yeah. It's uh, And so, and that I think shapes what your needs are, what the services are that you need to render. And, and that extends obviously not just for HIV, but all the way to the the essence, right? Like the fabric of our democracy and how we how we uh, apportion representation and how we how we district out our states. Yeah, and you know, you, you think about it. It's really um, it shouldn't be a problem to ask this question, comma. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. However, uh, we're in a political environment where basically since about two thousand seven, citizenship has been on the front lines of. Of um, of debate in this Oklahoma and Arizona kind of led the way on this mm-hmm. if you think back, and in the process there's a conflation that occurred, which is that if someone is a Latino and a Hispanic, then they're an immigrant and then they're an illegal immigrant, mm-hmm. right? Rather than just being your neighbor who right happens to have a slightly different name and. Better melatonin, right? right. You know, uh, I mean, uh, better melanin. Sorry, melatonin. Yeah. Up. It's nap time, <laughs> yeah. right? Okay, yeah, better melanin, right? It, yeah. This, this is the problem. We've conflated these things up, and we've created a climate of fear in this country. And you know, we all ask the question: Why is Fox News scaring the hell out of our grandfathers? Right? Mm-hmm. This all feeds in together, and it's also part of feeding a fear narrative that is completely misplaced. Um, that that's just me getting into politics now. We need these data for good reasons, right? Because it helps us deliver legitimate services. Sure. But it also helps us understand how to put people on a pathway to citizenship. Right. Yeah. Sure. Well, and and then, and I think one thing that frustrates, and you, as a, as a political scientist, as a resident political scientist, tell me if this is is correct, but I think something that frustrates political scientists, epidemiologists, people that work in a variety of areas of public policy, is that we actually know that the census data is not very good. Like the American <laughs> like the American Community Survey is much better, but by law the government is only allowed to use the census to determine certain things. And so this gets to there's been a debate for a long time about whether or not you have to actually physically count people and people who are a lot better at math than me would say, no, what you do is you count a representative sample and then you use sophisticated statistical techniques to estimate what the actual population is. But then there's one side that says, no, damn it. The constitution says you will perform an, what is it? You actual enumeration, an actual enumeration of each citizen. Um, And when people don't respond that like that mucks the whole thing. up. This is a West wing episode. It is. Yes, it is, in fact. It is. <laughs> and you know, statistical adjustments have always been around. Uh, there are none currently in the Constitution. But what you're getting at is one of the other great frustrations about redistricting and about, uh, about the census data, which is we're going to take the census next April, okay? 
and it's going to take a few months to compile the data. And then early in the next odd-numbered year, in 2021, those data are going to be turned over to the states through uh, things that are called TIGER files. Hmm. They come from the Census Bureau. They're loaded into geographic information systems. Then we start drawing districts, right? So we get those districts done sometime between fall of 2011 and, say, roughly April of 2012. And you got to get the districts done fairly early in 2012 because you have to have your primaries using those districts. And because of the thing called the Military and Overseas Voter Education Act, the MOVE Act, you've got a really long election cycle because mm. you have to have about two months between a primary and a runoff and between a runoff and a general election. Right. Okay. So you've got this long campaign season. You have to get these districts done. But we're not going to vote in the general election until November of 2022 with these data. And those representatives will be seated in January 2023, some 32 months after the census was taken. The first representative votes will be taken. And Americans have moved all over the place since then. But what you were alluding to earlier is it's a thing that we call a legal fiction, okay? Which is we operate under the legal fiction that the census is deemed accurate, even if it isn't. By law, it's declared and deemed accurate. It's as if God had sent the archangel Michael down to tell us that these data were what they are, regardless of what we see with our eyes. It's, I mean, legal fiction sounds like an oxymoron, yeah. just like like uh, government efficiency. And I wish we could apply that to my bank account. <laughs> Look, I know that it says that's what's in there, but right. I'm telling you right. that what the truth is, <laughs> right. is it's four times that much. That's right. Do you want to believe me or, or your lying eyes? Yeah, right? Right? Right. Money's only based upon faith anyway. That's, well, that's, that's a true story. No. So, Keith, you said earlier, we're, we've talked about redistricting, and I think we've kind of got a, a handle on what redistricting happened, what redistricting is, and it happens every 10 years. Mm-hmm. But I want to get into to this concept of gerrymandering, and you, I think, put it brilliantly saying gerrymandering is how you screw the other guy. Pretty so, much, yeah. You know, it's been in the news a lot lately, and we're going to talk about some of the Supreme Court issues. But when you put it like that, gerrymandering is how you screw the other guy, that makes me suspect this is not a new phenomenon, and it is probably not something that is uh, endemic to a particular party. Is gerrymandering uh, as old as the Republic? Pretty much, yeah. The uh, It gets its name from uh, Elbridge Gerry, who was uh, governor of Massachusetts back around 1812. And what happened is the state legislature down there passed a legislative map designed to really, really, um, to really um, put the screws of the Federalist Party that advantage the Democratic Republicans. Gary was actually opposed to that bill as governor and didn't want to sign it. And it got signed and it got implemented. He got defeated for re-election as governor of Massachusetts and then a few months later became vice president of the United States. <laughs> so, you know, it worked out well for him, but then he died. Solid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you, you talk about landing on your feet, right? right, right. Yeah, but it, um, that map had some very peculiar-looking districts in it, one of which looked like a salamander, political cartoonist, turned this into right. the into the, uh, into the public domain graphic that all of us put in our textbooks now because it's free. Okay. Right. You know, so we get that in there, but um, and his name gets forever tied to crafting districts to screw the other guy. Um, also, yeah. but they mispronounce it, right? His name was Gary. We Gary. pronounce it gerrymandering. Right. I wonder. This is an aside, but I wonder in the uh, the classic television show Parks and Rec, the character of Jerry's name we find out is actually Gary, and I wonder if that was a gentle nod to this scenario. I. I hope so. I hope so, too. Anyway, please continue. It could very well be. <laughs> and props on Parks and Rec. Nicely done. <laughs> uh, you get solid on that one. Okay, so the um, so what you're doing whenever you're drawing a map is there are certain things you must 
do, okay? And everything we must do has been in place for about 57 years. It goes back to a whole series of cases in the early 1960s, uh, starting with a case in Tennessee called Baker versus Carr, and then there is a subsequent case in Georgia called Westbury v. Sanders, another one called Gray v. Sanders, and another case called Reynolds v. Sims, okay? And here into the Lit Review. But these four cases taken together create the principle of one person, one vote, and create the standard that when you draw a representative district, they have to be of roughly or they have to be as of equal a population as practicable is the term, okay? So what this means for congressional districts, which we talked about previously, we have an exacting standard. If we can draw districts to exactly equal population under the census, we need to do it. We can allow for minor deviations based upon population, but if we get into litigation and somebody comes along and says, I've got a more perfectly apportioned map with even lower population deviations, they're going to win at court. I mean, we saw a map where there was a map in Pennsylvania litigation in 2003 Congressional map had a deviation of 23 persons per district. That seems pretty good. Yeah, but it lost in litigation to another map that had a deviation of one. Mm. Okay. So so equal apportionment is of high regard to this process. Yes, it's a very high regard. It is assumed. Okay, and in fact, if you look at uh, the most recent decision out of the court over uh, the Wisconsin litigation and the Maryland litigation, it is baked in. It is assumed that you're going to equalize populations. Now, for Congress, that means high exactitude, highly exacting equality. When you go down and you look at the state legislative seats, though, when you're electing your state senators and your state representatives to go up to 2300 Lincoln here in Oklahoma or wherever your state legislature may be, you got a little more latitude. Uh, you can have a population deviation of up to plus or minus five percentage points. Hmm. Okay, well, That seems like a lot. Yeah, but the thing is, you can't just do that for no reason. You have to have some general policy goal for the state, some general principle that's not partisan that drives the population deviation. So it may be that you want to maintain, keep counties together as much as possible, right? right? right. So you're not going to violate county boundaries any more than necessary. Are you going to try and keep cities completed together and follow city lines? Communities of interest. Yeah, yeah. A good, solid community of interest argument that is equalizing, okay? Now, back in 2003-04, there was litigation in the state of Georgia, and I actually worked this case also, it's called uh, Coxie Larios. And in in the Larios case, the Democratic legislature in Georgia had drawn state house and state senate districts where with 45% of the statewide vote, Democrats were getting 60% of the seats in the state legislature. So if this sounds familiar, Mm -hmm. like Wisconsin, yeah, it is, okay? And they have been achieving this goal for a number of years. And they go and they redraw the maps and make the Republicans even worse off, okay? And what they did is they maintained population deviations where all the Republican seats were 5% larger than average. All the Democratic seats were 5% smaller than average, And if you look, there was a geographic and a partisan explanation for this. If you looked at the partisan basis of the districts, the districts with fewer people were Democratic, and the low-growth areas were Democratic, the high-growth areas were Republican, and they were all overpacked with people. Also, if um, if you looked at the geography, South Georgia and the core of Atlanta had the low population districts. The state of Georgia tried to argue in court that they viewed that as being a general interest to put as many representatives as possible into South Georgia and into Atlanta. 
And the federal judges looked up, the three democratically appointed federal judges, two Carters and a Clinton, okay, looked up and said, in Gravy Sanders, didn't we say you can't do that in 1960? Didn't this very court, the Northern District Court of Georgia, say where you live should not dictate the power of your vote, that your land shouldn't have more or less value? Right. So when you have the population deviations, you have to justify it. And it has to be neutral. It has to be a good government purpose, right? You're drawing compact districts. You're following county lines. It can't be that we think that Telfair County is more important than Fulton County. Sure. Yeah. With that in mind, though, so that's what we're supposed to do. Right. But we have plenty of examples where that does not happen every 10 years, right? Like there's Mm -hmm. there are plenty of districts, even here in Oklahoma, that – if my mother looked at it, it would be like, no, that's gerrymandered because it looks squirrely. That's yeah. not always the case, though, right? Yeah, and, you know, that's the fun thing is um, Sandy O'Connor, Sandra Day O'Connor said that redistricting is the one political practice where looks truly do matter. Hmm. You know, laying aside what your candidate looks like on TV, right? <laughs> this is the place where looks really do matter and appearances matter. And when you see something that looks funny, you ask the question, why does it look that way, Right. We want our districts to look like brownies in a pan. Right, but that's not but, possible. But they yeah. can't, though, right? Because, like, and so this is one thing that I, and you, please tell me if I'm wrong, but this is one thing that frustrates me in this debate because I hear people say all the time, like, well, I mean, you can look at that map and you just you just know that it's messed up. Well, no, you don't, right? Because if you look at the state of Oklahoma, population density is not equally spread, right? First of all, the state of Oklahoma doesn't look like a brownie. It looks like fried pan, right? Right. And then so, and then, and then throughout the frying pan, population is not distributed evenly. And not only is it not distributed evenly, it's not, it is not evenly unevenly distributed, right? Like the very, yeah. like the very, the variations don't necessarily, it's not that they don't follow rhyme or reason, but they don't follow something that necessarily is in line with the geography or the boundaries of a county or the boundaries of the state or any other municipal, uh, municipal kind of line that's on a map. Right. So to, to me, I, I get frustrated at the argument that like, I mean, I understand the like compactness, right? Like the compact yeah. argument, because it's, it seems like it's, it's hard to say that like, you know, um, folks in maybe like Watonga and folks in, you know, uh, Oklahoma city would be necessarily like a community of interest, but just because the district looks funny doesn't mean that it is a, an, a, a gerrymander or like a, badly poorly drawn district is my is my thought am i wrong in uh, that you're absolutely right and here's what's fun is there are a bunch of you brought up this notion of compactness okay and compactness indicates the extent to which a district has a relatively regular shape okay uh, think about it this way the um the shape that has a minimum amount of perimeter that can capture the most space in it is a circle right practically speaking the shape that can catch capture the most space in the least perimeter and be put next to each other as a hexagon, right? Okay, you know, so every every tabletop gamer knows this thing, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and actually, this is a fun thing for the art for the RPG guys. Redistricting is basically role playing with uh, loaded dice and mapping. Okay, <laughs> that's basically that's awesome. it. Okay, that, that that is basically the deal. And the Supreme Court is the dungeon master. Okay, so. <laughs> Yeah, and yeah, and right now the Supreme Court is lawful evil, but that's neither. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But it's, for those of you that are progressives, that's what you're thinking. Enjoy it. Just keep going. Okay. So 
What happens with compactness, though, is there are some arithmetic measures you can put on this. So you take the shape of any district and you compare it to a circle. So one thing you could do is you could look at a circle. You know, so let's suppose, okay, you remember when you were kids in elementary school or kindergarten that you'd make those Thanksgiving turkeys? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, so yeah. You trace your paper, hand. Trace your hand. Mm-hmm. Imagine if you did that and you cut that out and you made that a district. Okay. If you were to draw the smallest circle that can wrap around that hand-shaped district, your little Thanksgiving hand turkey-shaped district, and you measured the percentage of all the space in that little circle that was taken up by your hand, that would tell you the amount of compactness you have. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's called the smallest circumscribing circle score. Mm-hmm. And your hand in a circle is actually pretty compact, but it looks funny. Mm-hmm. But you're picking up most everybody who's in that circle, okay, or most of the, most of the topography. But imagine if you took that hand and you laid a string all around that boundary and then you stretch that string out into a circle and you measure the area covered by your hand to a cover by a circle with the same perimeter as your hand. It'd be vastly bigger. Right. Yeah. And the compactness score goes way down. Okay. We have two perfectly good measures of compactness that lead you to very different conclusions. Okay. And part of what we would do when we measure compactness is we don't usually look at a single district look at the whole map and look at what's going on on average okay and this is the fun thing is i can not me but one one could gerrymander a map with beautiful elegant compact shapes and really create huge advantage sure and arithmetically just to give you a sense of this by the math if you go to the wisconsin gerrymander from 2011 2012 that map is pretty much as compact as the map that preceded it which had been drawn by a federal court in 2002 and I was in the litigation for that map that was run in 2002 and that court put compactness as one of its premiums small population deviations no more partisan bias than absolutely necessary and compact shapes you can really gerrymander and completely disguise it so how how do you do that because so we've talked about like you need Right, so you need compactness. That's one of the right. criteria that you're supposed to meet. You need equal population apportionment. That's one of the other criteria that you're supposed to meet. Right. So when you're talking about gerrymandering, creating a map that advantages one party over another, one group over another, whoever, whatever, whether it's party or race or whatever, how do you do that? Like, what's the what? What do people do to make that happen? Oh, there are so many things you can do. Okay, because you have to remember that this is not a blank slate system, okay? It's populated with people and voters, and it's populated with incumbents, right? So part of what you want to do is you want to make sure you take care of the incumbents in your party. And when you say what you want to do, you mean... If you're going to gerrymander. Right. Okay. Let, let, just to, let's just to your, clarify that. Because, let's, I mean, dear reader, suppose one were a gerrymanderer. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> suppose this is your goal. Here's, here's what you're going to do is you're going to first of all look at your incumbents and figure out where they're at, Right. And you're going to give them seats that are sufficiently safe that they won't get beaten. Mm -hmm. But you also can give a little bit on the design because they're incumbents. They're going to scare off strong challengers. They're going to be able to raise money. Even at the margins in a highly polarized environment, you're going to pull some crossover vote, okay? So you make sure you take care of your incumbents. But the other thing you do is you really, really mess with your opponent's incumbents, right? So one thing most states have is they have a minimum residency requirement that you have to live in a place so many months before filing. Mm-hmm. If you draw your districts late enough in the cycle, you can draw an incumbent out of their district 
Mm. And they're not going to be able to move to run in another seat. That right? seems mean. Oh, <laughs> it <laughs> is. <laughs> it is. Well, yeah. And as an example of, not of that specifically, but um, Senator, former Senator A.J. Griffin from Guthrie, right up there, when she ran the, she ran in 20, in a special election uh, because the previous incumbent had died while in office, but his, that, that district, whatever, 22 or whatever it is, had changed. And so when she ran, she waited and then ran in the new district because it, that's like where she lived. And I don't, I don't think it would have worked for the way that her district was before the point that she ran. It was like kind of a few months. So she didn't run um, in the general against that guy. He ended up passing away, but it yeah. just worked out that she was able to run in the, in the general. And I was like, huh. Oh. So you only ran because that district changed its shape. And she's like, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Now, uh, for what it's worth, it's easier for Republicans to gerrymander than it is for Democrats to their advantage. Why is that? Okay, uh, part of it is uh, a peculiar consequence of the Voting Rights Act. Hmm. Okay. Majority of minority districts. Yeah, yeah, and the need, the need to create them. Um, we should and- probably... Describe what those are. Okay. Um, Keith? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, in short, go to Amazon.com and order Triumph of Voting Rights in the South. And Chuck Bullock and I talk about this at length in that book. Okay. But um, but a majority-minority district is a district that has an electorate, the majority of which is made up of some distinct ethnic or racial minority whose voting rights are covered by the Voting Rights Act. And this includes uh, Spanish language speakers, Chinese, Vietnamese, Korean language speakers, African Americans in particular, okay, and Native Americans. When you have to draw one of these districts, what's going to happen is you've got, there's a three-pronged test from a case called Jingles E. Thornburg from the 1980s that you have to satisfy. And then there's a fourth component called the totality of circumstances test. And in a nutshell, how this works is, you have to have a concentration of voters who could be the majority of a district in a compact shape. That's part one. And compactness is loosely defined when you do this, mm-hmm. okay? Uh, then the second thing is you have to have a history of what's called racially polarized voting, which means that minority group and, um, and the Anglo-white majority have to have a history of voting and opposite preferences, okay? Then on top of that, the minority preference has to usually lose, Okay. Mm-hmm. If you meet those three criteria, and then there's a thing called the totality of circumstances test, which means you've got a history of a variety of discriminatory behaviors and habits. You've got SES, socioeconomic status indicators, where minorities are much worse off. If all these circumstances are present, you have to draw that majority-minority district remedy. That's when the Voting Rights Act comes into play. Into play. And Go ahead. No, no, please. No, I, I thought I was going to ask a question, and then I didn't. Well, I, I was going to give two, four specific examples in Oklahoma, right? That um, in Oklahoma City, uh, state house districts 97 and 99 on the northeast side of town. And then in Tulsa, North Tulsa, 72 and 73. Um, those are districts that tend to be majority African-American by population right. and, and typically have African-American representatives from those districts. Yep. So it's a... There are districts that are a majority of a minority group. Right. But are are those districts that are subject to Voting Rights Act and that that's why they're drawn that way? Okay, this is where it gets fun, okay? <laughs> One reason you draw these districts is you get hauled into court and you get sued and you have to create them, okay? 
And you do that under what's called Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And the burden of proof is on the person bringing suit. Okay, so if we litigate on behalf Mm -hmm. of a minority group, we have to make our case. Okay. The other thing that can happen, though, is it may be that that constituency just exists. Right. In which case, if you break it up, you could be violating the Voting Rights Act. So Oklahoma is challenging because it's a relatively unsegregated state. Okay. Now, the city of Oklahoma City, with the growth of the um, of uh, of the large Hispanic population in South Oklahoma City, that's mm-hmm. changing a bit. But relative to most major urban areas, we're relatively integrated. Yeah, there's as opposed to like Tulsa, for instance, which oh, even Tulsa is not too yeah, terribly okay. segregated. But like um, Detroit, Milwaukee. Yeah, that, there's some listeners reading. that wasn't like a slam on Tulsa. I just I had been under the impression that. When you compare Oklahoma City and Tulsa, Tulsa tends to be a little bit more. Is that accurate? Tulsa has more checkered history than we do. Is probably the nicest way to put it. Woof, that's, that is a nice way to yeah. put it. It's been terrible up there. But anyway, uh, go, go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you. Oh, are you kidding? This is great. The, um, <laughs> okay, so what happens is either these constituencies happen to exist, so you draw a district around them. So if you go to the Black Belt of, say, Georgia, you know where I went to school and did a lot of work, it's hard to not draw majority-minority districts simply because you've got these 55, mm-hmm. 60, 70% black counties down there. You're going to draw them. You go to South Texas, 90, 95% Hispanic counties. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if you were to look at a, at a congressional district map of Texas and look at South, uh, South Texas, the South Valley, you'll see a variety of long, narrow districts being drawn. There's a reason why. They're called the slot cars. And the reason we draw them that way is that if you drew nice, compact districts in South Texas, they'd all be 95% Hispanic, and you'd minimize the impact of the Hispanic vote in the congressional delegation. Mm-hmm. So to actually be fair to Hispanics and not dilute their vote by overpacking them, right. you draw these long, skinny districts. So this this is an important point, I think, to point out to, to listeners is that, and I'm going to say it, I, I'm going to say it like a couple of different ways to make the same point. One is that gerrymandering occurs sometimes intentionally but for good intent right that you're trying to not you're trying to help groups not waste votes think of it as being like smallpox inoculation in the 18th century right this is a terrifying example so far but please please go ahead (laughs) well anybody listening to this podcast saw john adams okay yeah so you give somebody a relatively minor and benign version of a virus, it inoculates them against being much more sick mm-hmm. later or dying. Right. You engage in a little bit of gerrymandering to ensure fairness. Right. Right. To mitigate against a larger ill. Sure. You, you pulled that one out of the gutter. Good job, Keith. I appreciate it. <laughs> so you, I, I was going to say, um, well, I lost my train of thought now, Scott. You go ahead. <laughs> uh, you, so you used a term earlier that I, I want to dig into just a, a little bit, overpacking. So there's, mm-hmm. as I understand it, when you talk about gerrymandering, there's kind of two big like methodologies that that are easy, I think, for lay people to understand. So there's packing and then there's cracking, right? Yeah. So packing is like, uh, I mean, the best, I, uh, as listeners know, Andy and I like to enjoy a, a, a spot of whiskey when we, uh, when we record... Uh, podcast. So this is an analogy that works well to me. So I've heard I've heard packing and cracking described as like let's say that you're uh, you're mixing drinks, right? You're uh, you're gonna make like a gin and tonic. You can take a you can take a bottle of gin and you can like take only the first like third of it, and you can spread that third across like 
10 drinks and you're going to have like not enough gin in any drink to like even taste like a gin and tonic. And that would be cracking, right? Cause you're, you're, right. Cr- you're, you're diluting the strength of a group by placing them into lots and lots of different districts. And in, in, in no single district will they have enough power to affect the outcome of the election. Is that, that is right? perfect. And then as opposed to taking like, uh, taking that whole bottle of gin and putting like, or taking the remaining, you know, two two thirds and putting those two thirds, one third each into one gin and tonic, you'd have the world's strongest and worst tasting gin and tonic. And so what you're doing is you're saying, okay, we have so many people that we can't, we can't keep them from affecting the election in its entirety, but we can take all of them, put them into one or two districts and make sure that those are the only districts that they win. So, so packing and cracking, are those the two, Kind of main. Those, I mean, it's an it's an oversimplification, but is that the? That's pretty straight up. I mean, you can either you can either pack a bunch of people who all agree together into a district to minimize their impact elsewhere, or you can take a bunch of people who agree together and bust them out so they can't have an impact anywhere. So the problem with this, or the the place where it, it gets difficult, is that for those minority majority minority districts, is that sometimes folks get packed just because of where they live and because yeah. you're trying you're trying to adhere to one constitutional standard or one legal standard and in the process of doing that you have to kind of err away from another right yeah and i give you an example we'll go we'll go to wisconsin which has become like the poster child for everything wrong in redistricting right <laughs> and uh and you know and I, I, I readily concede and i've said this before i've worked very hard for the last six years once I got out of consulting to make sure that I tried to make this right with the Supreme Court. That's what my amicus briefs were about with Bernie Groffin in front of the high court, which is I worked as a technical consultant on redistricting where the other guys really, really got jobbed. Okay. Mm-hmm. And to the extent you can give the courts a legal test to fix that and create new standards and new principles to fix that, that's all I'm capable of doing. Okay. You know, which is you fix how your tools are worked. And to put that another yeah. way, so you you did some work in Wisconsin, consulting oh, yeah. for the legislature. Um, the the majority in Wisconsin in Wisconsin after 2010 was the Republican Party, yeah. and they uh, they created a map that is, I think is similar to what you described in Georgia. Georgia, I think in 2018, the Wisconsin legislature, the Republicans won. I think they won something like 45, 46 percent of the vote, and they have nearly 60 percent of the seats in the legislature. Something like it, that. And you know what's funny is any statistical estimate we did on the ability of that map to perform never indicated it would perform that well. It which really is, was remarkable. Which, I mean, I mean, if it was me, that'd be like a point of pride almost, I feel like, right? Like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, so what, and, and to be clear, yeah. you created a set of statistical tools that then the legislature used to draw this map. And what you're saying is, since you have, because now you're in academics and you're not, not consulting anymore, right? Right. And you have been working by filing amicus briefs at the Supreme Court, by like working with with other groups to try and show that yes, there is a way that you can measure partisan gerrymandering, and that there's a there's that it can go too far. Is that yeah, is that exactly that there are tests that can be applied. There's also a legal foundation for the argument. And what's funny is my whole when I did expert witness work, my entire reputation was built upon the idea of arguing for fair and competitive districts, and I never argued to defend the fairness of the Wisconsin map on partisanship. And if they had asked me to do it, I couldn't have done it. Mm-hmm. I, there was no, I couldn't have done it. It's, it was not a testimony trail that I could adhere to. So, you know, having gotten out of that game, the question is, okay, how do you, how do you undo this? How do you fix it? And it is a bipartisan problem. The Republicans have got the same problem in Maryland that the Democrats have in Wisconsin. 
But we have what's called a countercycle Supreme Court, which means that this court's um, legal uh, its its legal mindset is out of cycle with the larger body of constitutional thought, of legal thought, and of politics. It is a court from a different era, from a different age. It's an old 1980s Federalist Society Supreme Court. And it's not in line with any current political majority. And it's behaving as such. And, you know, if we were to go back and look, we'd have to go back and look at something like the Lochner Court and how it was so far out of line with uh, the events of the politics of the 1930s to find a similar comparison, Hmm. okay? So, um, you know, part of what, you know, when I, when I looked at what my options were, I had to ask the question is, how can you serve truth but also serve your largely ethical obligation to not just throw your client under the bus? So I never testified against them. But I explained legally as a scholar what I did. And I had a call from uh, NPR for an interview when the first round of litigation came down. And um, uh, Nina Totenberg called me up and she said, um, everybody says I need to call you. And um, we're trying to figure out what you're doing. And they said, doesn't this guy realize that he's cut his own throat? And they're like, nah, he quit. He doesn't care. <laughs> you know? And that's the truth of it. There's a larger truth at work here. Okay? But getting back to the previous question about packing versus cracking and back to Wisconsin. Wisconsin creates a problem for, uh, for Democrats. Regardless, even if you drew perfectly fair maps, they've got two big geographic problems. This goes to a thing that uh, Bill Bishop talked about in his book, The Big Sort, which is that in Milwaukee, a highly segregated city, all the African-Americans disproportionately lived in predominantly black communities to the north and west of the center of Milwaukee. Most Hispanics lived to the south and west of the center of Milwaukee. Affluent whites live on the, on the, uh, the lakefront. Then you go to Dane County, Madison, right? You know, grounds you for everything that Republicans hate in Wisconsin, right? Right. You know, other than cheese curds and beer. UW. UW, exactly. You go there. It's 85% Democratic in Dane County. Dane County is oddly shaped because it's on a peninsula between two lakes. There's no way to draw compact districts unless you're going to pack in all the Democrats in Dane County. And it's very hard to pull down the Dane County vote and spread it out so it optimizes for Democrats. You end up with less compact districts in general. Um, it tortures other community of interest. And uh, there was a, a now-retired federal judge, uh, uh, Judge Easterbrook, who was on the uh, Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, who was also on the law faculty at, I think, Chicago. Um, he was an Indiana jurist who was on the Seventh. And his observation in drawing a map for Wisconsin in 2002 was, I can't help it if all the Democrats live closer together. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and that's that is part of the problem is the birds of a feather do flock together. Sure. And especially so for Democrats, um, those of us who are progressive, who live in university towns or live in urban areas, tend to live in diverse areas. Right. They are racially, ethnically, culturally, professionally, highly diverse. And, you know, Austin is like you know, the, the quintessential example of this. Right. Sure. It's a very hard thing. You know, it's a very, very hard thing to find a conservative in Austin until you get far away from the center of the city. And Bill Bishop said in The Big Sort that if I want to understand the politics of a place, all I need to know is basically uh, three things. How far is your house from the street? 
How far apart is your house from the house next door? And is there a covenant in your neighborhood that restricts the color you can paint your house? Mm-hmm. That's and, super interesting. Yeah, and, you think and about I would it, think that that's probably true. Yeah, and you think about it that if you live in a house that's close to the street, that's close to another house, and you can paint it purple, and there's a Subaru out front, I bet you're a Democrat. Scott and I both own Subarus. Yeah, that's true. But only one of us is a registered Democrat. That's true. I, that, not me. Uh, I'm about I, to buy a second Subaru though, so uh, proud progressive. Uh, that off, proud offsets. Progressive. So I have I have a couple a couple other questions, and one of them you've already answered. So one thing I was gonna ask you that um, is a question I think is really interesting, and I I have my own opinion, but is gerrymandering like is it a bad thing? But you you think about it any time, or, you... or should I even say not even it's a bad thing? Can you can you make a qualitative moral statement about gerrymandering can you say that it is good or bad or is it an amoral concept okay um well first of all yeah there's no one universal morality beyond the golden rule let's start with that and there's a reason lawyers can't bring up the golden rule in a closing argument right it's a trump card so you don't get to play it okay um it depends on your morality and this actually goes to a, a principled difference between progressives and conservatives in the united states today okay and here's where that difference exists. Either it's a nation of rights where people are created equal under the law and there's inequality of opportunity, or it's a nation of privileges where you must demonstrate that you're worthy to exercise certain rights of citizenship such as the franchise, right? So either you turn 18, you're a citizen, and you're not a felon, and you can register to vote, or you need to be worthy and demonstrate that you are going to be a good citizen and you have to pass a literacy test and you have to have property, that you have to qualify your ability to have access to exercise your suffrage, right? This is the big difference because the left is saying a person's a person's a person and it's incumbent upon the state to show that I shouldn't be here. The state is saying, we'll define who a person is and you got to prove to us that you're worthy, right? And that's the problem. Right there. And this is a first principles difference between these two big movements in the United States right now. And it's increasingly got a racial subtext to it. Sure. So, no, (laughs) I can't make you a moral argument for gerrymandering. Fair enough. So that leads into how gerrymandered is Oklahoma? That's a good question. I'm not sure. And actually, I'm going to not answer that question. And here's why. Uh, I was retained by the Oklahoma State Senate as a consultant on a piece of litigation that challenged the Senate districts back in 2012. Okay, hmm. and at, and at the time the Republicans were still in power of the Senate, right? Oh yes, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that yeah. changed in like Clark oh, Jolly drew those districts. That's right. That's okay, right. Right. and the thing is, um, I had no hand in drawing those maps, but. Um, Let's just say that if you ran an analysis on Oklahoma of the sort that you ran on Wisconsin, you'd probably have more of a problem in the Senate map than in the House map. Sure. Interesting. I, I will say I, I recently learned or heard, and I haven't seen the data, so I'm just, I'll throw it out there, but that uh, 25 of the 149 districts in Oklahoma were qualified to be gerrymandered by some standard, and I forget who did the map, but I haven't got it yet. Um, but as soon as I do, I'll let you know. And then the last thing that I wanted to ask is, so there's several, um, you know, recently there was a major Supreme court case, justice Roberts with majority opinion. This was announced on the last day of term. I think that partisan gerrymandering is non-justiciable, right? So that right. 
for the time being, uh, the law of the land as adjudicated by the Supreme Court is that you can't go in and say a map is too gerrymandered based on party alone. Race, it holds. So I think in response to that, there I shouldn't even say in response to that, but as gerrymandering has taken a, a forefront in the public consciousness over the last 10 years or so, there have been a variety of solutions that have been proposed. So in, in Wisconsin, there was a group that looked at this thing called the efficiency gap, which we don't have time to get into. That's there's a bad other, measure. Don't worry there, about that. There's there's other measures that you can look at. But one response has been the formation of independent redistricting conditions. Right. Uh, 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 independent redistricting commissions. Arizona has done this. I think California has done this. Missouri. Uh, Missouri has Michigan, done this. Michigan, Utah. Do you, you know, is there a way, to me, that seems like the most logical like the formation of some group that has to draw maps where they can't take into account things like partisanship, that seems to me like the most logical remedy for this. What's your thought on, is there a remedy to, to gerrymandering and to the extent that there is, does something like an independent commission make sense? Well, I'll tell you, uh, let's start with a very brief thing, which is single member districts with a plurality election or a lousy way to elect a legislature and get anything fair. Okay. Fair enough. What you need is you need multi-member districts. You need a uh, single transferable vote, uh, cumulative vote. You need uh, list systems if you want proportionality. You okay? need to redesign the system. Yeah, basically we yeah basically need we need to do it the way Ireland does it. Okay, but let's lay that aside. Um, if you're going to draw districts, if you want to have a morality that holds, the most moral thing to do is to take the power to apportion political power out of the hands of the beneficiaries of it. And that means you give it back to the people. That means you use a citizen commission, you use a judicial check at the back end. But you also have good government criteria. You have rules that have to be followed. And California has got rules and a commission. Arizona has rules and a commission. In Florida, they only have rules. But at the back end, they have to go to court as a back end check. And that's why Florida keeps having their congressional districts tossed is they draw a map. Then they get challenged. Then they have to go back and fix them because they have a set of rules and the court is acting like a back-end retroactive check, like a commission. Anything that takes it out of the hands of the legislature is good. Putting it in the hands of public by giving them a system where they can go in and map and play with things is good. Anything that opens up the box and lets people play. We are a sophisticated people, okay? Um, I always hate invoking Noam Chomsky, okay? <laughs> but... He gave me a quote once for my textbook, and it goes something like this. For those who think the American public is not sophisticated and cannot be sophisticated about politics, listen to them talk about sports. I mean, I think that's a great place to leave it. That's a good ending. Keith, thank you so much. My pleasure, guys. We'll do it again. Thanks again to our guest, Keith Getty, for joining us. You can go to the blog post on our website, letsfixthisok.org, that corresponds with this episode, and we'll have some additional information, including links to a blog post that we posted back in the spring about redistricting. Uh, That post includes a link to an online uh, redistricting game that's honestly kind of fun and pretty challenging. For next week's episode of the Gerrymandering Oklahoma series, we're actually going to step outside Oklahoma and talk with Dan Vacunia, who is the National Redistricting Manager at Common Cause. Dan has been involved in implementing fairer redistricting processes in a number of states, including California, Ohio, and Florida. It should be a really interesting discussion. On that note, don't forget to rate and share our podcast with your friends and family, please uh, feel free to 
tweet, Facebook share, and all that jazz. Let's Pod This is produced by Scott and me as a product of Let's Fix This, which is you know, our actual organization. Our theme music is provided by the Sugar Free All-Stars. And remember, decisions are made by those who show up. 